Hello and welcome to Nutrition 411, the podcast, a special series led by registered dietitian and nutritionist Lisa Jones. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Hello and welcome to Nutrition 401, the podcast where we communicate the information you need to know now about the science, psychology, and strategies behind the practice of dietetics. Today, my guests are Sandra Arvello and Priscilla Flowers Thomas. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having us today. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much. First, I want to introduce Priscilla. Priscilla is the co-owner and president of Centric Solutions a healthcare and IT consulting company. Her focus is to help persons at risk for or with diabetes get the care they deserve. Ms. Thomas has over 40 years of experience in a variety of healthcare settings, developing and overseeing the implementation of chronic disease prevention and management programs for diverse populations. Welcome, Priscilla. Thank you, Lisa. And now I want to introduce Sandra. Sandra is an independent consultant and director of community health and wellness at Montefiore Nyack Hospital. Her commitment is to provide health information and promote disease prevention among the most underserved and diverse families. With over 15 years of experience, she is a recognized national expert and speaker on diversity, health education, diabetes, nutrition, chronic diseases, and social determinants of health. Her work has been featured in national and international TV, numerous printed media outlets, radio, and peer-reviewed journals. She is a spokesperson for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the American Diabetes Care and Education Specialist. She has received numerous nominations and awards, including Mom on a Mission, next to Michelle Obama in 2017, and the Garden State Diabetes Educator of the Year Award in 2018. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you, Lisa. And first, I want to start with Priscilla, if you want to share a little bit first about your area of expertise and your background. Okay, thank you, Lisa. So a little bit about my background. My parents are both from North Carolina. And so my passion for diabetes prevention and management actually stems from seeing family members develop diabetes, not have access to diabetes care and education, and unfortunately go on to develop the devastating complications such as blindness, heart disease, and chronic kidney disease. So I wanted to be able to translate the evidence-based guidelines into practical, actionable steps to break the cycle. I took the non-traditional path to become an RD, started out actually as an RN, and then realized they had interests in nutrition and stress management and physical activity. So I became a CDCES, then an RD, and then a certified case manager. Um, All my experiences, I believe, have really led me to my current position as a consultant project manager for a nonprofit organization. So I would say as far as my area of expertise, it's really partnering with a variety of organizations and stakeholders to solve problems related to chronic disease prevention and management that disproportionately impacts communities of color. Thank you, Priscilla. I loved hearing that because you really have a dynamic and diverse background. And that combination of the nursing background and the nutrition background really sounds like it allows you to serve your clients really well. So thank you for sharing. 
And Sandra, how about you? Is there anything else you want to share about your expertise and background? Sure. So similar to Priscilla, what moved me into diabetes was to see the need of so many people out there who need more education, basically, on diabetes care. So being a Latina myself, I've been specializing myself in providing diabetes uh, care and education to Latinos, but also other minorities, because unfortunately, it is the minorities who are mostly affected by, you know, high hemoglobin A1Cs and just poor outcomes of diabetes. So seeing all these results, similarly to Priscilla, is what has moved me into working with the poorest communities and the most underserved to be able to provide, you know, education, but also to work with other dietitians and other professionals, trying to find better ways to bring the message across to all these uh, people who actually need to learn more about diabetes. Yeah, that's excellent. And I love that you're, you're both on a mission. <laughs> Like the mission, and which will keep you busy for a long time. And I love the, the populations that you serve. So thank you for sharing that. And I want to move into our first question. Both of you have amazing backgrounds. Over the course of the years, many things have changed in the area of diabetes care. So if you can talk about specifically what changes have you experienced in this particular area, I want to hear from Priscilla. You know, I think, as you said, Sandra and I are both on a mission. We're both on a mission to make diabetes management something that's accessible, affordable to people that are disproportionately affected. So some of the changes that I've seen, and just to give a high level, is increased focus on creating the infrastructure to ensure that access to affordable DSMES is available to all patients, especially those at highest risk. The next is implementation of interventions to actually address the low number of referrals and low participation for DSMES. So, you know, I know it's important for us to increase the number of referrals, but I think even, even bigger challenge is that we want to make it easier for patients to participate in DSMES. So one intervention that finally got a lot of traction during COVID was elimination of restrictions that helped to facilitate the delivery of DSMES via telehealth or audio only. These were methods were very popular with a lot of our patients. There is still some uncertainty about delivering DSMES in these formats after the public health emergency, but I think it's important that we are providing these services in these formats, tracking the data and evaluating those outcomes so we can show the effectiveness and actually support continued availability. Thank you. And I think if this was what, a decade ago, we wouldn't even have some of these, which I think is fantastic because I'm curious to see moving forward because there's probably some of your patient population that prefer to have it continue the way it is. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing, you know, I mean, COVID, there was a lot of negative things from COVID, you know, from people who got seriously ill in the hospital and actually died from it. But one thing, I think it forced change in the healthcare system. Um, you know, there was an interest in telehealth prior to, but there were so many restrictions that it really made it 
impossible to do, and it wasn't anything that was really appealing. So I think COVID actually forced that change. And I'm hoping that because it has, I really believe because that has started, we can't go backwards. (laughs) So we can't go back and say that we can't do telehealth and we can't do audio only at all, but it will be, what does that look like? Um, And, you know, fortunately, some of the changes will not be able to be permanent changes. So I think a lot of that is going to be us advocating. The patients liked it, they found it convenient, you know, they don't have to worry about leaving work to attend the session. So how do we continue to advocate for this um, as uh, particularly for communities of color that are already, you know, uh, disproportionately affected and they need as many resources and as much access as they can get. And I think that's providing easier access. So hopefully, Continuing to advocate will allow that to still remain as a, an avenue. Right, I agree. Thank you. How about you, Sandra? How about the changes that you've experienced throughout your career in this particular area? I think that the most uh, recent that have uh, been getting my attention are the advances in technology and also in education methods. And I'm going to start with technology. So you just referred to virtual visits and all of that. So yes, the use of, you know, some virtual apps that allows patients to see their doctors through the computer, through the phone, definitely has helped to shorten a lot of distances, you know, between providers and patients. But not only that, I feel that right now we have, you know, like the insulin pins, the glucose monitors, the continuous glucose monitors, so many things that actually help patients keep track of their diabetes that, you know, makes their life a lot easier than having to carry you know, the old vials and injections and needles and all of that. So I I love that. The only problem with that is that it's still expensive, Mm -hmm. as we well know. And, you know, obviously insurances are a problem because they not all pay for the insulin pens. And then what about the uninsured people who don't have any access to this technology, unfortunately. So there is still an issue, but I like how it's advancing and how it's advancing to help the patient with diabetes. Now, in regards to education methods, I think that we've made a lot of progress, you know, just simply with the use of language, for example, like we don't say diabetic patient anymore, but patient with diabetes, you know, we're becoming more personable. And I, personally don't like to treat the patient or the disease. I like to treat people, you know, I like to treat the person. So that has helped me get to the level of care that I really want for for my patients. And also, you know, there are many different methodologies now, you know, we're moving away from that patient, doctor, relationship where the doctor lectures the patient, you know, now it's all more about education, about, you know, how you can live your one-on-one. We have many more diabetes education specialists who 
have that ability to, to teach the patient and find about social determinants of health and treat the person as a person and help them in the full context of what life is like and not just a disease. We have more support groups. We have more diabetes self-management education groups, diabetes, even diabetes prevention programs. So, you know, the more we move away from that lecturing one-on-one, the happier I get, because I feel that people are finally starting to get the message across. And all these innovative ideas are very welcome in my world. That's great. You mentioned the technology and also treating treating the patient as a really as a person. Because before it was like, you know, back in the day, it was let's put everyone in the bucket. Either you have diabetes or you're not. And I remember saying the, the diabetic patient. And I like the new language much better. Absolutely. Yes. yes. If somebody has a heart attack, you're like the heart attack, you're not saying the heart attack patient or the, car- the cardiac patients, but for some reason with specifically with diabetes, it was always the segregation of diabetes and non-diabetic, like diabetic and non-diabetic, which I always thought was interesting. And I like, I like the new language. So thank you for sharing that. For- yeah. And I feel that for a lot of cultures, you know, we need that personal touch. Maybe there are some cultures that don't require that, but at least some of the cultures that I deal with, like the Latinos, the Haitian, the the African uh, people from Africa, we require that warmth, you know, that you're not just a patient. You are a person who I'm here to help and I'm here to learn about you as much as I hope you can learn from me. And I think that that personal touch really opens a lot of doors and people get to understand a little bit better of what, how to manage their diabetes and especially how to live with their diabetes. You know, like they are not seeing diabetes. Like, for example, I don't like to call diabetes a disease. I just call it a condition. I say, you know what? Disease is when you're sick. If you don't feel sick right now, you're not sick. You just have a condition, you know, and, and we all have to learn to live with different conditions, right? So we had to change the way we were living during COVID. We're going back to normal or a new normal. If, you know, the electricity goes off at home, you're going to have to adjust to that. So that's what I tell my patients as well. It's like when you get a diagnosis of diabetes, it's not the end of the world. You're still a healthy human being that just has a condition and now you just have to relearn how to live with this condition a long and healthy life. That's excellent. That's a really good example, an excellent language to to use, which goes nicely into our next segue, which is really, what are some misconceptions about diabetes that you hear, whether it be from other dietitian colleagues, patients themselves, patients, family members, Anything that you want to share about that? So, Sandra, thank you for talking about the personal care for diabetes. A person with diabetes is more than their diabetes. Mm -hmm. So they could be a mother, a father, they could be a daughter, a singer. You know, there's more to them than just their diabetes. The diabetes is just one aspect of who they are. The other thing I'll, I'll talk about is that when you talked about the advances in technology and some of the challenges, Some of those are the same challenges with telehealth, like telehealth is great. However, we also saw that there were large populations that weren't able to participate in the telehealth. 
either they didn't have the technology, so they didn't have a computer or smartphone, or they didn't have access to the internet, reliable access to the internet. So even though telehealth you know, is, is great to be able to offer that, we still have to realize that there are some challenges and barriers that we have to address. So I would say one of the biggest misconceptions for me that I think people have is that patients with uncontrolled diabetes are just non-compliant. Mm. And so when I hear that, it's like, it just makes my skin crawl. <laughs> so we, we tend to blame suboptimal management only on the person with diabetes, but we don't do this for other, as Cassandra said, conditions. So for my years in healthcare and working with diverse populations, I know it's not always true that people just don't want to do the right thing. You know, sometimes what we're asking them to do is unreasonable. Sometimes they don't have the resources to do what we're asking them to do. And then sometimes life just gets in the way. They've got too many other competing priorities that they can't really focus on what they need to do to take care of themselves. So I've never met anyone who said, I'm content with poor management of my diabetes and I want to have my foot amputated or I wanna go blind. Most people do not want those complications. So I think the biggest thing when I think about when you say somebody is not compliant, you put all the blame on them. There is some individual responsibility for behavior change, but there's also system responsibility for us to make sure that we have systems and services in place that help people to actually manage their conditions. And I think we really have to do a better job of mitigating the barriers so people with diabetes can have the resources and the confidence to manage their condition and reduce their risk of complications. So there is some responsibility on us, you know, as healthcare professionals, as a society, to make sure we're helping people who have diabetes because we know it's very hard to manage. We know it takes a lot of time and we know we're, we're, they're doing this in addition to their everyday life. So how do we kind of make this easier for them and help them to be able to achieve the control that they deserve? Priscilla, you bring up such a great point. And it sounds like to me, like there is some type of, some sort of stigma around it too. And I remember when I used to do home care and we used to get consults, one of the consults we'd always get was, of course, like they can't control their blood sugar. It's uncontrolled because they're probably not, you know, go in their house, look to see what they're doing. They're most likely not following the diet. So right. it's, and then we'd get to the house and it wasn't that it was like maybe the, the medication, like there was other factors involved. So I love what you're saying about that. And it's really kind of coming up with the whole picture and then working together as a team. It's not just on the patient, their responsibility. It's a team. team yeah. Effort. Cause it could even be that their medication needs to be adjusted. They are not able to do that. That has no. to be done by the provider. So, you know, I think with diabetes, you, I agree there is this stigma. I think there is more of the stigma with type two diabetes because of the behavioral health component that there's this perception that people can control their, not that they can control their diabetes, but that the control of their diabetes is all based on what they do. When we know there's a lot of other factors that come into play as far as diabetes management. Yeah, that's great. And we all know it's not e always easy to change a behavior like something simple as drink more water. And, you know, that's goes, what goes into that. Exactly. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> 
Sandra, how about you? What do you think about some common misconceptions that you may be hearing in this area as well? Well, um, I, I I think Priscilla just, you know, just said the most important one because yes, we all we all hear that all the time from patients and providers alike. But you know, when I think of, of my patients and what their misconceptions are, you know, there is a lot of fear for insulin because when they get diagnosed, when they get uh, prescribed with insulin, you know, they feel that that's the end. Mm-hmm. It's like close to dying. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, I failed myself. There is nothing else I can do. You know, it's that fatalism that comes into play as soon as they hear you need insulin. Something that I try to do is to try to talk to my recent diagnosed patients about insulin right from the beginning, you know, so that whenever they're going to hit that brick, they, they know that insulin is just another treatment and not end of life situation, as a lot of people like to put it, you know. And, and I think that another misconception is that when people have low literacy, there is no comprehension. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like people don't want to waste their time, basically. Like, oh, you know, they don't know how to read or write or they don't know numbers or whatever it is. So it's a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. It takes more time to help a person uh, with low literacy or low health literacy to comprehend a lot of the diabetes concepts, especially because some of them can be very complex, especially teaching numbers, teach how to measure and count insulin units or reading a food label, but it's not impossible. So what I feel is that us as providers, as health uh, providers, we are the ones who are failing the patients. It's not the patients because we need to find a way so that they understand what we need them to do. You know, it's not up to them. It's up to us to help them manage their diabetes. And as Priscilla was saying, oftentimes, you know, it has even nothing to do with the patient. It has to do with the way we want to manage their diabetes when we don't even take into consideration where they're coming from. A few years back, I had a patient with very uncontrolled diabetes and the doctor kept uh, going up and up on the insulin and it wasn't until I saw the patient and I I just asked what's going on you know like we don't understand why you know in spite of the amount of insulin your numbers are not coming down and he just basically disclosed I'm homeless I have no way to deal with insulin or needles or anything like that because I don't even have a refrigerator and the first thing that I was told was that I have to put the insulin in a refrigerator I don't even have a home you know, even less a refrigerator. So whose fault is that? You know, it's not the patients. And it's not like patients feel proud to be homeless and to not have the resources or be going through a lot of issues, as Priscilla was saying, that to them at the moment are more important than their diabetes, you know. So if we don't ask the questions, if we don't want to find out about the circumstances our patients with uncontrolled diabetes are living in, you know, it's going to be impossible for us to help them. And again, it's not the patient's compliance. Is, you know, I call it the detective's 
work. <laughs> I feel like we're not doing our detectives work right. So we're not finding the cause yeah. for uncontrolled diabetes. When you were, I was listening to you answer that question. The thing I was thinking of is it goes back to what you were both saying in the beginning is you're, you need to treat the patient, not the condition. And I think if most practitioners remember that, then they're way ahead of somebody else that's just like, oh, I'm going to treat your diabetes and here's the cookie cutter version of what I do next. And I'm just curious in that particular case that you gave an example of, what did they say? Like when the homeless patient was like, I don't have a home, how am I going to, I don't have a refrigerator to put this in. Like, what was their response? Well, obviously, you know, at that point we have to include the social worker and the case manager. So I love that Priscilla is like, all in one. It's like <laughs> these great two parts, right? Because just the nurse, the dietitian, the educator, the caseworker, everything in one. That's a great package. Your, your patients are really privileged. But we have to include a whole team, you know, to be able to help the patient. But long story short, we were able to convince the patient that he needed the support of his sister so that he could leave the insulin in his sister's house. And then sometimes when the sister wasn't available, you know, we had to keep the insulin in one of our fridges in the clinic because, you know, to make it available for the patient. So it, it takes work. You know, you just need to be willing to walk the path with your patients. Well, that's great. You came up with a treatment plan and mm-hmm. with this, you had backup solution to a solution, which was nice versus just saying, okay, well, like our time is up. You have to go now and didn't yeah. provide the, I've seen that before. Like maybe we'll talk next time. And then the patient doesn't get, get there. And that's why they don't come back. And that's why they're not successful because there's not a team working with them. Exactly. And what you just said is very interesting because I think it has happened to all of us. It has happened to me indeed that, you know, it's like, okay, next question. Oops, sorry. You know, I have to see my next patient. That's very aggravating. And, you know, especially if you're not feeling well. And when your diabetes is out of control, you're definitely not feeling well. No matter what you say, you're not feeling well. You're tired. You don't even want to be there. You're cranky. And, And being told, well, that's it you know, when you have so many other questions. So, but it's very hard living in the system that we have right now, you know, our our healthcare system, unfortunately, is not designed to provide that kind of care that people with diabetes need. But that's why then we have diabetes care and education specialists, because we have a little bit more time. And we are definitely key in that team approach, you know, especially I, I really feel that there needs to be a team approach to be able to treat the patient with diabetes, right? One only person can do it. Even, even if we are diabetes educators or the doctor alone or at the nurse alone, it's impossible. You need a whole team to be able to, to help a patient. Yeah. So I definitely agree from what I'm hearing. So that leads me to our next question, which I'm curious to hear because you're bringing up some issues that, that happened along the way. And I want to hear about some successes that, that you think that you've had along the way that will help other colleagues working in this particular area, the area of diabetes. Like what could you share with them that you've been successful in like our best practice that will be helpful to them moving forward so they don't experience similar things? One a second, Sandra's comment about us failing the patient, because I 
think that until we see that, then we don't have the, the buy-in, the compassion to be able to help find solutions. A lot of patients are told from the beginning that if you don't do, if you don't follow this meal plan, if you don't check your blood sugar, you're going to end up on insulin, you know, as Sandra said. And so there's this fear of insulin. And then by the time you end up on insulin, it's like, oh my God, this is all my fault. So I think one of the things Sandra was saying is starting from the beginning saying that diabetes progresses. And at some point, the medication you're on now may not work for you. And we may have to look at other medications. So they know from the beginning that yes, I may be eating right, I may be physically active, but because of the nature of diabetes, it may actually get worse. And then we've got to reevaluate the treatment plan. I think one of the things for me has been throughout my career is building those trusting relationships. I'm reminded of a quote that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So, you know, we have to build, work to build those relationships. And that's what Sandra was talking about, talking to the person, what's going on? Why are you, you know, why are your blood sugars going up? Um, you know, I remember I once had a patient who traveled on public transportation. He arrived for his appointment and in his clothes that were not very clean. So, you know, all of a sudden in my head, I start thinking, okay, does it mean that he doesn't have access to laundry services? Maybe his water was cut off. And even I, even though I asked questions, I couldn't get a response from him, but I'm still thinking something's not right. And I remember calling his wife and his wife said, oh, everything is okay. He just didn't want to be late for his appointment with you. And when I thought about that, I'm like, out of all the stuff he had going on, it was important for him to make sure he just dropped everything he was doing to get to his appointment on time with me. And so that's one of the reasons I do what I do. It is hard work. Um, there are a lot of challenges. It's not the easiest thing to do. You, you have to be willing to compromise because what we think is an ideal situation, and we may say to somebody, okay, well, you need to eat you know, vegetables with every meal. Well, if they don't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables, that's not going to work. Or if the access they have, it's very expensive and they can't afford it, that's not going to work. So, you know, sometimes I think we are idealistic as far as what we ask people to do. And we don't give them the mercy to be able to say, okay, I really can't do that, but this is what I can do. So working with them to find a solution that's going to work for them that may not be ideal. So I think that's one of the things. And then, you know, just looking at the fact that, as I think Sandra has mentioned it, it's going to take all of us to figure this out. So no matter what role we're in, no matter what setting we're in, if we have a patient that we're working with that has diabetes or prediabetes, and say, for instance, they don't have access to the program and resources, how can we make those connections? How can we make sure they get connected to the resources that they make? But that means all of us have to be paying attention to the patients and being able to make sure we're able to offer them the services that they need at, at that time. And again, just thinking outside the box, being innovative, you know, if we have patients that are not coming to our sessions during the day, maybe because they're working, 
or they're serving as caregivers. What adjustments can we make in order to accommodate those patients? So again, I think as you know, Sandra has said, some of this is, is a lot of this is really on us. We know the barriers for the most part. How can we make adjustments to make sure we're serving these patients? Because we know if we don't, it, it's going to impact the quality of life. And eventually it's also going to impact us because we're going to pay for those healthcare costs for the hospitalizations and the ED visits. Um, so either we kind of pay now or we're going to end up paying later for it. So I think those are probably some of some of the success um, that I've you know, kind of had. And I think working may help um, some other colleagues working with this population. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I hear a lot of compromise being able to meet them in the middle, which I not try not to be too rigid in the recommendations or the offerings. Yeah. And again, it goes back to the original with treat the patient, not the condition. Mm-hmm. So thank you. How about you, Sandra? Some successes I, on your end. Yeah, I think that, you know, if I, if I can talk to my colleagues or anyone treating patients with diabetes, I will summarize success in two words in one concept, motivational interviewing. I, first of all, the trainings for motivational interviewing are fun. So I like to take one every year (laughs) and you might think that you already know. And every time that I take one of those trainings, I learn something new and it's fun and it helps to renew how you talk to patients, you know, because there are some things that you definitely forget. But I think that it's a great skill to have because you learn how to talk to people and especially how to listen. And and that opens a lot of doors to people talking to you. As Priscilla was saying, it's so important that, you know, we know how to talk to people so that they talk back at us, you know, and taking into consideration those social determinants of health and what their needs are. And you know what? We can't do it all. We're not God, right? But having a team surrounding us that can help us with patients that I can say, okay, I need a psychologist. This patient is depressed. I need a social worker. Mm-hmm. This patient needs resources. I need a case manager. I need a doctor, an endo. You know, it's it's a lot of things. I even reps, because sometimes we don't even know about like other medications that might be out there because it's so much out there, you know? So it really takes a team. So I think motivational interviewing and a team are best practices, at least uh, that I've learned through the years. And uh, that's that's what's gonna help not only us, but the patients the most. Well, that's wonderful. And then I, when you were talking, I was thinking, I don't know, sharing is caring. That saying popped into my head. So it's like when somebody feels like they're listened to, they're more apt to share. And that's what you two do so well in your practice, it sounds like. So thank you. So with that, I want to ask you the, the next thing, like, what do you think is on the horizon for the management of diabetes in the future? A couple of things. I think there's going to be increased focus on diabetes prevention in an effort to curb type two diabetes. So we talked about management of type two diabetes and even with the management type two diabetes, the outcomes are suboptimal. So our focus really kind of preventing the diabetes from the beginning 
may help us to be able to have less people who have diabetes. And then therefore, we don't, we don't have the, the outcomes that we're getting now. I think integration of social determinants of health into clinical care will become standard care. Right now, it's, it's almost like it's optional. Um, there is more interest in it, but I think it hasn't become the mainstay that it really actually should be. Uh, focus on achieve, achieving health equity to improve outcomes. And then I think the other thing which I'm hoping comes soon is elimination of cost sharing, co-pays and high deductibles for chronic disease management. Because if you can't afford the copay or you have a high deductible, even though DSMES works great and we know it's effective, it can reduce A1C by up to 1%. That can reduce the risk for microvascular complications by 37%. So we know it works. But if you can't afford the copay and you can't afford the deductible, then it's going to be harder to get people to be able to take advantage of these services. So I'm hoping that on the horizon, we will see the elimination of, of the cost sharing for these patients. So it, it, it just eliminates one more barrier that they already have. Well, that would be great if they can eliminate another barrier. I know. That'll be <laughs> cost sharing. Well, There's so can, many of them. <laughs> yes, that's true. They can expand cost sharing into other areas too, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole nother podcast, right? Exactly. <laughs> Sandra, how about for you? I, I only need to say, Priscilla, from your mouth to God's ears, because, <laughs> you know, I really, if, if that's the future of diabetes, I think we're in the right path. You know, I, 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 I am with her. Like, I feel that especially for the most underserved and un, uninsured, underinsured, there needs to be something because those are the people who suffer the most. They are the ones who cannot afford medications. They cannot afford doctor's visits, and they end up in the ER, you know, because they have no other way. They are passing out. They're comatose. They're confused. And and there is nothing they can do to help themselves. You know, it's like, yes, we have some programs in some pharmacies, and they offer discounts and all of that. But when you have $5 in your pocket and you have to choose between buying medication or feeding your two children, I mean, tell me what you're going to choose. You know, and unfortunately, people don't understand. I, I think of mothers often because a lot of mothers end up in the emergency room and I think, oh, my God, OK, you're choosing your kids over your own health. But, you know, if diabetes kills you, then who's going to take care of your kids, you know, but and you can tell that to a patient, but it's still the problem persists. It's like if, if you can't afford your medication, if you can't afford your insulin or your syringes or whatever it is, you can give them some syringes for free, but you cannot give giving them everything, you know? So definitely, I, I think there need, needs to be a big healthcare reform that looks at all these issues because it doesn't just affect one person or one family, it affects all of us, you know, as Priscilla was saying, one when when this patient ends up comatose and amputated and can't work anymore, you know, it, we're going to be paying for it. So I'd rather pay for metformin. It's it's yeah. it's cheaper, you know, than than having to pay for an amputee and and all the needs of that patient, especially if it's a younger person with a family. So 
definitely we we need to do some thinking and do some type of healthcare reform. Yes, that's definitely true. So Sandra, I would I what is one bottom line takeaway that you would say for the for the audience that you would say? And it sounds like you already said it earlier, but maybe if it's something different than what you said earlier or if it's the same thing, feel free to repeat it. Yeah, no, I I um I think I need to insist <laughs> that every patient with diabetes is a person, you know, that deserves all of our attention and that we cannot forget that next to the diabetes, there are so many confounding factors that help to go, you know, help to move the needle up or down in their diabetes. And we need to be aware of all of them before we, we treat, and I'm saying quote unquote, treat, because sometimes, you know, we don't need to treat anything. We just need to show a path for the patients to be able to walk the right way to be healthier. That's, that's the main goal is that, you know, no matter your diabetes or any other chronic disease, call it blood pressure or whatever it is, you want to be on the right path to health and learn to live with a chronic disease and live a healthy and long life. But you need support and you need to, to know what your patients are going through and, and what pros and cons they have and, and, you know, help with all of them. Well said, Sandra. <laughs> Sounds like they need a personalized blueprint for their path. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Priscilla? What would you say is your one one key takeaway? So I think the one key takeaway is that understanding that all patients with diabetes deserve affordable access to DSMES services and resources. So there are a lot of things we can, first of all, it's going to take all of us to figure this out, no matter where we are, no matter what our role is. We can make sure that if we have a patient that we're working with that has diabetes, that they refer to DSMES services, can utilize our problem-solving skills to identify challenges and barriers, and then try to think outside the box and be flexible to develop innovative solutions. Thinking about you know, if you're not a CDCES, maybe becoming a CDCES so you can actually, you know, provide those services and or establishing an accredited or recognized program at your practice. You know, I'm always saying that the floodgates are going to open up and we're going to see all these referrals. And so we're going to need healthcare providers that are going to be able to um, serve these patients. And so just being ready and being prepared, doing what we can to help patients with diabetes, reduce their risk for complications for those that are at risk for diabetes, diabetes prevention, and then also, you know, just making sure that we are providing the resources that they need. Thank you. Thank you so much, Priscilla. And that's a great takeaway for our audience. And Priscilla and Sandra, thank you so much for being on our show today and sharing your insights with us. There's so much information here. I feel like this could be a two-part two-part podcast. So maybe we'll have another episode in the future, Diabetes and Bring You Back On. So again, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank Thank you, you, Lisa, for the invitation. (laughs) For more nutrition content, visit consultant360.com.